Well, 2 Corinthians 5.40 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're living in a place that is not our own. It's not our permanent home. We're temporary residents in a place where we represent Jesus Christ. And since you came to Christ, since you gave your life to Jesus, your citizenship has changed. Your citizenship, the Bible says, is now in heaven. And it says we eagerly await a Savior from there. Well, in the meantime, then, the Bible also says that we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his very appeal through us. And this means so many, many different things, doesn't it? It means the way we live in our neighborhoods. It means the way we go to work. It means the way we spend our money. It means the way we prioritize our lives and make our choices. It means so many, many different things. Because God is making his appeal through us. And has called us and privileged us as his sons and daughters through his son Jesus Christ to be the gospel that so many see. Before they come to the place of hearing the words of the gospel, they see the life of the gospel in us. And so the Bible says we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Part of that also as a church means that uh, our perspective toward those who come our way needs to be one of extravagant welcome. That our perspective as believers who are privileged together to be in a place like this, to gather together in a fellowship of liberty and freedom as we do, and to be a kind of a church that we are, that part of our call is to be people whose arms are always open, completely open to whomever may walk through our doors. And, and not just in a tolerant way, but in an extravagantly welcoming way. In a way that causes us to be intentional and active in our welcome toward others. And uh, I was having the thought as we were worshiping, a stray thought that sometimes comes in, you know, not from the Lord, I'm sure, but just one of those distracting thoughts. I was just noticing the way that people tend to sit in much the same place, even here, in this, um, you know, free experience that we have here, y'all kind of gravitate towards seats or chairs that are familiar to you. And I wondered how, how epically preposterous it would be for me to ask you to just pick a different seat, for crying out loud, as a way of being extravagantly welcoming. Because I wonder what your reaction might be if you came in and someone were sitting in your seat. I can only, I can only begin to imagine such a thing. And some of you maybe are guests here today and they're going, I hope I'm not sitting in someone's seat. <laughs> but I think just the, the rehearsal of the same thing over and over again, week after week, which came from a place of liberty, can go to a place of such habit, such habit that we become habitually unwelcoming. Am I right? So I'm, trying, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for having a seat preference, but I'm trying to just cause you to think about the various ways that we can be unwelcoming without even realizing it. And our call as a church is to be a church of extravagant welcome, of a church where we would freely give up our seat for the stranger and not wait till it was the last seat, but to give up our seat for a stranger if, if need be. And so today I'd like to continue in what will be the next to the last of the messages in this series of extravagant welcome. I'd like for us to return to the same passage of Scripture that we visited last week in Luke chapter 15. And this is the parable of the prodigal son. And today, I would like for us to look at the second of three figures 
in the parable of the prodigal son, and you're probably anticipating what next week's going to be about, right? Perhaps. You're probably right. But today I'd like for us to look at this wayward son. Last week we looked at the father, and we looked at this father's perspective, who had this outlook. He was always looking. He saw the son before he came back. Why? Because he was always looking for him. I heard some good reports from just adopting that perspective of the father this week. Always looking, always hoping that today would be the day that the wayward son returned. You know, and so our call as extravagant welcomers is not to be tolerant of people, but to be looking and saying, who's new? Who needs to be embraced? Who needs to get the welcome of the father, which we saw was an extravagant welcome as he ran to him, as he ran to him, I learned something about running, the father running to, to the son this week that I didn't know before. And that what, I, what I saw in a reliable uh, commentary was that the father ran to the son, that he would have lifted his robe, if you will, and run to the son for this singular reason. Because there would have been those in the community who, when they saw the wayward son return, would have wanted to stone him. Because his offense against the father was so egregious, was such, a, was such an unforgivable error. It was such a social, social crime to do such a thing to your father that there would have been plenty in the community would have taken it upon themselves to brutalize him when he came back. And so the suggestion there is that the father ran to the son to do what? To save his life. To save his very life. And this is our call, people. This is our call as extravagant welcomers. As these people return, it's our call to run to them, not to be the friendliest church in Grove City, blah, 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 but to save their lives. How many of you feel as though your life has been saved by coming into the presence of God? Raise your hand. Look at this. Look at this. You feel as though your life has been saved. This is the call of God on the church, to be extravagantly welcoming, not to have a bigger church. Who cares about the size of the church? I don't but to be those who lift our robes, if you will, (laughs) and shamelessly just run to the wayward son who's coming back so that we can save their life. We can be a party to their very salvation. And this father who was so extravagantly welcoming him, just throwing his arms around him and kissing him and embracing him, this is the picture of the father's heart for us. Well, today, as I said, I'd like very much for us to look at the the, the character that so many often think about in this parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and that's the son who went away, the, the wayward son. The thing I didn't do last week was take any time to establish the biblical context for this passage, which I'd like to do now. If you look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that Jesus began a string of parables, and he was talking to a mixed crowd. He was talking not just to his disciples, but it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. So there we go. So we have not just the tax collectors and sinners who happen to be the 12, but in addition to the 12 tax collectors and sinners, uh, you know, Jesus was permitting at this time many others to gather around. And it was a mixed crowd. Look at verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, so there they were. They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How many of you, like me, are grateful that Jesus welcomes sinners? (laughs) Or 
would we be without that? And then Jesus told them this parable. It says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Isn't he going to just leave the 99 and go off and spend his life finding that other sheep? Because the lost one, the lost one was in peril. And the lost one, though it had wandered off, and maybe by its own volition, maybe by a willful act of, I'm sick of this flock. I'm out of here. Maybe it was a feisty sheep. I don't know. But Jesus just went after him. Because irrespective of the behavior of any given sheep, the value is still the same. The treasure is still the same. And the treasure had wandered off. And so he said, wouldn't that person just run off and find him? And then when he finds him, come back and tell everybody to rejoice. And then that famous statement to many of us, I tell you, verse 7, that in the same way there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Some of you are in a key position today. You have not yet come to Christ. Thank you for coming. You have not yet come to Christ. Do you see the power you hold? Do you see the power you hold? That by today, repenting and turning to God and coming to Christ, by that action, you can cause the angels in heaven to rejoice. (laughs) I don't know what I could do today to make them rejoice. I think they've put up with me. I think they draw straws to see who has to look after me. But you, you who have not yet come to Christ, You hold in your hand today the very power of making the angels in heaven rejoice. And then he told another parable. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds, she calls her friends and neighbors. Rejoice with me. The theme is still the same. Let's party. We found what was lost. And then he rolls into the parable of what we call the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons, the lost son. Parable of the prodigal father, as I called it last week. But this story that has captured our attention, and the theme is the same. When something that is lost is found, it is time to do one thing. To scold, to condemn, to correct, to party. To party. Our job as the church is to party. Our job as the church is to celebrate. Let God do the correcting. Let the Holy Spirit do the correcting. The word of God is powerful. It says it's living and active and will do the dividing. We preach the word in the midst of our celebration and we will be convicted of the sin that needs to be convicted. Am I right? It is none of my business to go into your life and to start pushing you around. That is not my place. The one thing I don't really have a solid foundation upon which to stand. <laughs> but we celebrate. That's our call. And so this is the context, this string of four parables. He tells another one afterwards, parable of the shrewd manager. But the one that has our attention, this parable of the prodigal son... You know, Jesus may have been capitalizing on a parable that was already in circulation. This isn't for sure, but it's certainly interesting that this parable of the prodigal son had so much resemblance to a Buddhist parable that was already in circulation. 
there was a Buddhist version of this, had been in circulation for about 100 years at the time of Jesus. was not originated by Buddha, who was like 500 B.C., but originated by one of Buddha's main followers in about 100 B.C. So about 100 B.C., this common parable was sto- told. Remember, this is a, remember, Christianity is an Eastern religion. You know that, right? <laughs> so this is all happening in the Near and Middle East. And so these stories are being told. And among the Buddhists, they were saying, which originated on the Indian subcontinent, you know, uh, they were saying that there is this parable of the prodigal son. Now, so what I'm saying is Jesus may have been capitalizing on that, and he goes, a man has two sons, and they go, oh, I know this one. I know this one. And why would Jesus do something like that? I mean, some of that, sometimes it makes people nervous or insecure to make comments like that. I think Jesus might do this because he did it before. Because of two things. He was constantly capitalizing on something they already knew, didn't they? A, a farmer went out to sow. Oh, I know how this works, right? And then he tells them different kinds of soil. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he brings the punch. So Jesus was constantly capitalizing on things that they already knew. Another thing that Jesus would do is, is, is to correct things that they knew in the wrong way. And did you get to the part anywhere where you're reading the Bible and Jesus said, I know you have heard it said, but I say. And so he's connecting with what they've heard, what they already know. I know you have heard it that way, but here's how it goes. And this could be a perfect example of that because of the main differences between the Buddhist parable of the prodigal son and the way Jesus told the story. Not the least of which, that in the Buddhist parable, the son, when he returned, had to spend his whole lifetime working his way back into the house. He had to spend his whole lifetime. He started as a janitor and spent his whole lifetime in menial labor and working his way up through the ranks until then at the... On his deathbed, the father revealed to him who he was. And how different it is that Jesus said, it's not like that. You don't have to work your way back in the house. You don't have to work your way back. You just repent. You turn and you come to God because he's waiting for you. He has done all the work for you through his son, Jesus. There is no more work to be done But the work that needed to be done is done on the cross of Christ by the power of the resurrection. That's done for you. You just need to receive that work as having been done for you. And so Jesus is correcting. The other correction is that in the Buddhist parable of the prodigal son, as I said, the father, because of the circumstances of the parable, never revealed his identity to his son until the father was on his own deathbed. What does that say? It says that there was no opportunity for the restoration of relationship in this life. And Jesus said, it's not like that at all. But the Father wants to embrace you now and and kill the fatted calf and put the robe on you now and put the ring on your finger and celebrate with you now so that the character of the Christian life is meant to be in constant celebrative communion with the Father. Not something that you have to wait until the end of someone's life least of all your own, to enjoy. And so Jesus may well have been capitalizing on that, to correct, because he said it's not like that at all. 
Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his own stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. Just to revisit from last week, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, here goes the well-rehearsed apology, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Next verse starts, meanwhile, the older son, we'll get to that next week perhaps. <laughs> As I mentioned last week, the fundamental flaw in the son's apology was that he had lost his sense of worth. And he said, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He said, I have sinned. And he connects, look, Look at the error. He connects his actions with his worth. I've sinned. I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. He says, I have done it all. There's nothing that you can think of, I don't suppose, that you could add to the list that would be something that the prodigal son had not in one way or another done. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And his error is in connecting his actions with his worth. And then he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy. There is such an important distinction between the word worthy and deserving. And we've got to get this. The vast majority of Christians I meet have not embraced this difference between worthy and deserving. Two incredibly important uh, words, and yet very, very different from one another. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So what we deserve, the wages, is what you deserve, correct? You work and you get a wage. If you don't work, you don't get a wage. You don't deserve a wage if you don't work. And so you go to work and you get the agreed-upon wage. Well, the agreed-upon wage in the, in the economy of God for our sin is death. So our death is certain, correct? I don't think there's anybody in here who's going to stand up and say, I've never sinned. No, I, don't have, I, should not, I should not be expecting death. But all of us expect that our actions will bring us to death. 
So the wages of sin is death. But what we deserve is determined by our choice of actions. And what we are worth is determined by the one who loves us. Did you hear that? What you are worth is not connected to your actions. But it's, but it's determined only by the one who loves you. And they get to determine your worth. And you may argue with them and say, I'm not worth that. But you still don't get to affect their decision. Now when we talk about God, who says you are worth the death of my son Jesus, then he's making an incredible statement about your worth. Because our, our, what we deserve is determined by our actions. And so some of us are living out the result of our actions, yes? That's a train that we sometimes can't stop. But that doesn't affect our worth. Our worth is determined only by the one who loves us. I expect that I, am, uh, I have substantially greater worth to Karen than anyone else in the room. Because she loves me more than anyone else in the room. And she gets to determine my worth. And you may have a certain, desi- a certain evaluation of my worth, but it's probably built partly on what I can do for you. Yes? Think, yeah? don't, don't shake your head, yes. It'll probably hurt my feelings. But my worth is wrapped up in what I can do for you. And so that if I stop doing the things that I do for you, you might have a change of heart about how valuable I am to you. I think that's normal. But in a husband and wife relationship, I am worth something to Karen regardless of my actions. Now, don't get me wrong. I can screw this up. I can mess this up. My actions can affect how happy she is about me. And there would be consequences for certain actions. But at the end of the day, I have worth to her because she loves me, and because she and she alone gets to determine my worth in the context of that relationship. And maybe I have committed some heinous thing against her, and I could come and say, you, you, you no longer have the right to love me. And she, should have, she could say back, you never had the right to tell me that. <laughs> you, you know? Yeah, I'm terribly hurt by your actions, but I still love you. And the fact that you can't understand that just shows me that you're a man. <laughs> we may as well admit it, guys. We are the slower of the two. I think that's why God lets us lead. <laughs> but I think that my worth is substantially greater to Karen than anyone else in the room. And it's substantially more solid. And it needs to be that way. It needs to be that way in the context of our relationships. But the true worth of a thing is always and only ever determined by the owner. And so the true worth of the son could not be affected by his actions, but by the, by the decision of the Father, who says, <laughs> worthy. Oh, you're not deserving to come back, absolutely. But that's not where I'm coming from. God is saying that's not where I'm coming from. I'm coming not from your actions, but from your worth.
So what kind of person are we meant to welcome here? Yeah, every kind. Every kind of person. What? What? Yeah, because their worth is unaffected by their actions, by their attitude, by their faith, by anything about their life. Their worth is unaffected. Now, you will find it more difficult to treasure some than others. But their treasure is the same. Their worth is the same. And even in the context of your fluctuating relationships, you'll catch yourself allowing behaviors and actions to change your opinion of their worth. But that's not the way of God. They're still worth the same thing. That's why the father just kept looking for this wayward son. So does that mean that we condone everyone's sin? I neither condone it or condemn it. Not my place. I, I have to look through it. You have to look through mine. In order to appreciate the sacred center, the image of God that's stamped in us by his design, recreated in us through his son Jesus. And the reason that we welcome, why are we welcoming? Why am I urging you to be looking around every time we gather and looking around for an opportunity to extend the Father's welcome? Well, I think the reason is, is because by and large, people have lost a sense of what they're truly worth. They've lost it. They've lost their eternity. And so when a wayward son is out there, and they're out there, some of them are out there right now going, I got I to gotta get out of this. I got to get out of this. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to destroy my marriage. I'm going to lose my job. I, my life is purposeless. I, and for a variety of reasons, they're, they're, they're that son, you know, in the pig pen. And they're out there. And they're trying to figure out how to come back. And they're thinking, well, all kinds of things are going through their heads. Well, when I get this and this organized, and if I can just stop snorting that or whatever, then I'll come back. But you know what? It's not about that. Just come back. Our role, it's our privilege, is just to look at anybody who walks in the door and sees that they have a fundamental and equal worth to God. And to embrace them on the basis of their worth. Yeah, but I don't like what they're doing. I can't stand that. Why are you looking at that? If we looked at that with everybody, no one would be here. No one would be here. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's the treasure thing. You know, the title of my message is Welcoming Them for All Their Worth. And I, I actually fussed a little bit with which version of there I was going to use. Welcoming them for all the contraction there they are worth. Yeah. Or all their worth. They come possessing a worth. They don't come to get their worth here. They don't come here and meet Jesus and now they're worth more to us. No, They come with the same worth to God. And we want to love them for all they're worth. And so it always seems to come back to some version of the same question. And the question is this, for you. Are you trying to relate to God on the basis of what you think you deserve? 
or on the basis of what he says you're worth. You know, I'm having a good time with God because I've got all my addictions in check or whatever. And yet, you know, one of the things I love about my AA friends is they always know that it seems like the distance from the bottom to the top is really very small. And there but for the grace of God go I. You don't live on these lofty perches. Oh, I used to be this thing way down there. He said, I used to be that. Now by the grace of God, I'm this. You relating to God on the basis of your behavior? That's a really fragile up and down thing. God's good one day and bad the next because you're making him out in your image. Are you relating to God on the basis of your worth? Who says, you are fundamentally sacred to me. Lord in heaven, we bow now and ask for you to move here in this time of ministry and the time of just responding to you from our hearts. Indeed, we already have, Lord, in our singing to you and our appreciation of the word that's being shared from your word. And all these things, Lord, we have already said to you, come and take residence in us. I thank you for these who are here, Lord. I thank you for these who are here at 9 o'clock every Sunday. It's, it's always a better message at 9 than 11, Lord, when it's fresh. And I just thank you. So I just pray for them now. I pray for them as they've come and they're seeking you. There's some yearning in their heart, something they desire. And I pray that you would meet them in that. I pray for the ones who understand that today is the day of their salvation. Today is the day to give their lives to Jesus. I pray that you would cause their feet to move and for them to respond in ways that truly cause that change to occur today. I pray for those who are sick, who want to be prayed for for healing. I pray for those who are in trouble. I pray for those who work with these terrible thoughts in their minds or even dreams at night. May the Spirit of the Lord come for them and meet them now. I pray for every need. I pray everything that's already in your sight, Lord. You who know the number of hairs on our head, Lord, I just pray for every need, every need in their lives. And we dedicate these few moments to you, Lord, and invite you to come in your power and to move powerfully through us now in the name of Jesus.